And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are many things on which I disagree with Mike Gerson, a conservative columnist at the Washington Post, who served for six years in the administration of George W. Bush. But I really admire him. I admire him for the work he did in the Bush administration on the issue of PEPFAR, the anti-AIDS program in Africa that was a miraculously successful effort. And I admire his thoughtful commentary. A lot of his commentary these days has been a classically conservative critique of President Trump and the departure from norms and standards and institutions that have so marked this administration. Here's our conversation. Michael Gerson, welcome, and welcome to uh, the Institute of Politics. It's been great to have you here. Um, There's plenty to talk about um, in our politics today, and you've been a really pointed uh, voice in in this debate about uh, how we've gotten off the rails. But I want to set that aside and just talk a little bit about you and your Sure journey. Um, You came from St. Louis. Yeah, that's why I grew up in St. Louis. And your family um, uh, is an evangelical family, but your grandfather was Jewish. Gerson's a a Jewish name. It's a very typical American story in a certain way. One grandfather, a Nazarene circuit preacher, and the other one, you know, they were Jews from New York. Um, And um, so that's, you know, a lot of Americans in that category of that diversity. And where'd your parents meet? They actually met in Ohio. They were set up by family members on both sides. Um, and, uh, you know, but my mom was from the hills of Kentucky and my dad was from New York. Um, and But they got along great. And how did the whole, how did the, the, the evangelical uh, uh, commitment come out of that union? Well, it, I mean, it's kind of a, a long story, but so they were it's a podcast they, man, right? Knock yourself exactly, out. yeah. It's not a column. <laughs> well, they they ended up going to Presbyterian churches, Reformed tradition churches, um, which are you know actually kind of highly intellectual, um, kind of thoughtful settings, um, and um, uh, so I, you know, that's the atmosphere I came out of, and then. You know, when I went off to Wheaton College, that's kind of non-denominational, evangelical, broadly evangelical, kind of a mere Christianity, a C.S. Lewis kind of mere Christianity. Um, and um, you didn't go there right away, though. No, I didn't. I, you know, I always had an interest in foreign policy and um, went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Uh, started there. But then had it was not a spiritual crisis, more of an intellectual crisis of deciding I needed to know what I thought about the biggest questions of morality and ethics. Um, what and, made the what that's a it's unusual for a mm-hmm. freshman in college to yeah. to wrestle with that. What 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 caused that? Well, some of it is just what you end up being interested in in your classwork, um, and I ended up taking classes that were not going toward my degree, philosophy and theology classes, uh-huh. um, because I was really attracted to that. And, and just a kind of sense that I needed to do foundation, intellectual foundation work um, before I did other things, the superstructure. Um, mm-hmm. 
and I, you know, I wanted to do that in a context, broadly kind of theist context. Um, and, um, and Georgetown is broadly theist, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's, it's, it was not the place that I wanted to do that study. Um, and, um, and uh, so ended up uh, transferring and, and we, yeah, and right being a our, theology our neck of the woods, yeah, yeah, being a theology major, mm-hmm. uh, and did philosophy too. And what was your what uh, was there a sort of intent beyond that? Were you were you headed into? Uh... Well, you know, I'd always had a political interest, and uh, you know, I ended up writing. F- a column for the school, our school newspaper, the Wheaton College Record, um, uh, uh, kind of a political column, and um, which got noticed by a guy named Chuck Colson. Um, a, a historic figure. Uh, right, exactly, of Watergate fame, but this is after all that, when he had founded a prison ministry. Um, we should, we should uh, just, for those who, who, who don't know, he was, I think, the first guy who actually... Went to prison in the Watergate. Exactly. Scantily yeah. had been the White House counsel for a while under uh, Nixon, and and he was one of the seven Watergate conspirators, the original Watergate conspirator. Yeah, that's ex- exactly right. He underwent a kind of dramatic public uh, conversion to Christianity um, even before he entered prison, and then became really convicted in prison that he. He, he, as he put it, he wanted to spend the rest of his life in prison, which he did, um, visiting, uh, you know, prisoners and ex-prisoners and their families and doing a kind of outreach ministry uh, to, uh, you know, some people that are not uh, very highly visible or valued in our society. Um, and, I, you know, he ended up being, I think, one of the, the great um, uh, social reformers of the 20th century. Um, uh, you know, after a you know a political career where he thought I'm going to be important through politics, right, and ended up uh, you know dishonored, um, and then found an importance, a cultural importance that was beyond anything that he had really hoped. Did you have the discussion with him ever? And I want to get back to. Wheaton in the column that got his attention, but did you ever uh, have the discussion with him about that that transformation? That uh, how, what what exactly happened in that? Well, it's a very evangelical story. I mean, he really uh, he had an emotional uh, almost breakdown, um, a, a conviction of his own. Uh, failures and sins, um, and uh, and came to and had a Christian conversion. Um, that he, uh, I don't know the best way to put it, but he he was the most grateful man that I've ever known. Every single day, he was grateful for that change. Um, hmm. He talked about it all the time, um, very close to the surface, um, and uh, uh, you know, and and it. it and he thought a lot about it and wrote a lot about it, about kind of what power really means um, and where it really comes from um, and uh, and how politics can be an illusion, a kind of political illusion, um, and how, uh, you know, the things that are worst in our lives, the things that we think are the end, can be the beginning. Um, and that's ultimately, I think, a very hopeful message um, 
that we're, you know, we're not, don't have to be defined by our worst moment and worst act, um, that redemption is possible. And that's kind of what he stood for the rest of his life. And that was a message, strangely, to some extent, that these guys in prison just took to. They loved him. Um, you know, he had a, a story of redemption that they um, identified with, um, with someone, you know, who had from a very different background. Yeah, uh, going back to uh, to to Wheaton, had you always been interested in writing? Was writing something that? Yeah, I did the, even in in uh, high school. Um, you know, I I was always interested actually in presidential speech writing too. I had it from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a, a bookish, awkward child um, <laughs> who read you know presidential autobiographies and. Um, and uh, you know foreign policy books, and from the time I was young, um, not captain of the football team. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and that it it ended up being uh, when I eventually got there. I'm not going to you know preview it, but you know George W. Bush was so different than me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just as he was the big man on campus, and the, you know, kind of the. Uh, uh, that it took some getting used to, um, but ended up eventually getting along. Um, you, uh, uh, I read somewhere that you, um, you, 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 you talk, we talked about Watergate. One of the reactions to Watergate in the country was the election of Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. uh, who, who himself uh, very rooted in, uh, in, in his Christianity, right. uh, evangelical, Christianity and uh, his campaign was really uh, morally based. It was a, yeah. a country as good as its people. It was a reaction to Nixon uh, and Watergate, and you were attracted to him. Yeah, no, that was my first kind of presidential crush. Um, I um, remember when he did the Delta Queen. Do you not yeah, remember down that? Down the Mississippi. Down yes. Mississippi mm-hmm. I waited for six hours on the riverfront to be in the front of the line to shake his hand. Um, I've told him that since. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean... Interesting figure because he, you know, he he is still held up to, to ridicule and scorn for his term, I think beyond what is fair or reasonable because he did some significant things. But he's often measured against all the other presidents for everything he's done since. Right, yeah. Uh, and is and, and, and still doing uh, at the Carter Center and yeah. around the world, uh, you know, eradicating the guinea worm and all kinds of things that were um, remarkable achievements. So he, he saw a continuum of service there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wasn't alone— Particularly in the first election, his his first election uh, run for, uh, uh, presidential election, um, there was significant evangelical support he got. That was kind of before this deep tribal polarization of our common life, um, and um, uh, you know he was seen as a moral alternative to a moral era of American politics, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, was the first modern figure that was vocal about a born-again religious experience um, and was ridiculed for it and didn't seem to mind. Uh, You've had your own 
sort of existential crises uh, with health. And uh, you, you, you battled cancer. Right. Um, and I actually had a heart attack at 39 while I was at the White House. Uh, that's um, not an advertisement, by the way, for service in the White <laughs> exactly, House. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that was uh, that's true. And then a cancer diagnosis four years ago. And how, did, and how did that impact on the way you you view the events of the world? Well, it's a reminder of mortality. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, for me... Uh, I get my cancer treatment up at NIH, um, and um, and there's some of my best friends in politics are are the great humanitarian scientists of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at you know cuts at NIH that are proposed and other absurd things. Um, and um, so you really do value um, you know the the great. Uh, scientists that are doing work now in our time. Um, Do you, um, on the issue of healthcare, and you had some, you were critical of some of the approaches that we took right. yeah. uh, when uh, the president w- uh, went forward with the Affordable Care Act. Do you believe that every person should have access to healthcare? I do. Yeah, and I, you know, the question is how you how you get there, um, and. You know, I know when you go through the details of that um, debate, you end up with some of the things you guys did. Okay, you're led some of them there were drawn kind of, from conservative. Right, ideas. you're led there kind of logically. Yeah. I, un- I understand. Uh, I understand that. Um, Trust me, I wasn't thrilled as a political advisor with some of the things that you know. Mandates are not popular. Right, uh, they're element, but the, we came to it because. Uh, it was the only way to achieve, or it seemed to be the only way to achieve um, the kind of level of participation that was necessary to make the system work. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, but there are huge, I think, gaps, unaddressed gaps in our healthcare debate that have to do with cost, although that we've seen some gains on, on the cost side. Um, uh, coverage is, is, is essential. Um, you know, I prefer to do those things th- more through market-oriented approaches, subsidizing individuals, um, which isn't that part, what we did? Though? Part of part of what you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, uh, see, this is where you and I differ because I personally would be for single payer, like most industrialized countries have, right. or some version of it. Um, but given the fact that we aren't there, um, you know, we we had to we had to work within that. And uh, borrowed a lot of ideas from. No, I realize that, but it, it's it, it's a good example of the damage that's being done by a, uh, ineffective politics. Because normally, under a circumstance like this, you would do uh, Obamacare, you would have criticisms, and you would have some process by it. which you would fix things. And right? believe me, yeah. I would be the first to say, right. especially the way it, it was passed in the first place. Uh, there were obvious flaws that needed to be addressed, but to reopen it was impossible, right? Uh, given the politics of that moment, and it's been impossible uh, since. And that is, a, I mean, that's a serious political problem. That you know, the only things we get seem to be able to get are big reforms pushed early in a presidency, instead of then incremental change 
being possible for you, you know, move, yeah. moving onward. Um, but that is a, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges we have, you know, and that's, you remain very much part of this. Do you see, by the way, uh, and I don't want to jump way ahead here, but you've been very, very critical of President Trump from the, uh, from a, a moral and ethical uh, perspective. Um, do you see the same thing happening? Do you see someone emerging uh, and the country turning to someone who represents something starkly different? No. Or is that, po- is that not possible yeah. in this very, as you point out, polarized environment? Yeah. I, you know, I only have, you know, anecdotal material to go by. And you know, I just spoke at a big um, Baptist school in the South, uh, fundamentalist setting, a couple of days ago. Um, gave a message, you know, not a direct attack on the president, but talking about... Um, the damage that has been done to American politics by polarization, motivated reasoning, and dehumanization, and all of these trends of our time, um, and uh, had was there for an hour afterwards with people who wanted to talk, um, generally saying, "I'm so sick of what I see about American politics," um, and I hope that's true. You know that uh, it's like looking into an abyss and seeing. You know, this is if we go down this path too much longer, you're you know, you have you know, deep irreparable damage. Um, and um, so I think that's true. I mean, you know, I lived through the 2000 election, which was really the one that I contributed to most yes. as far as ideologically and um, was attracted to President, pres- Bush. President Bush and talking about compassion and conservatism and. And, you know, the party was prepared at that point to essentially allow Bush to have general election messages even in his primary process, okay? Um, And um, they were tired of losing, and they were ready for, you know, a center-right governing vision. Yeah, Um, and I think also um, there was, you know, the back and forth between the Gingrich uh, Congresses and its and its successors, uh, I think, left uh, people a little bit uh, scorched about the Republican Party. I mean, it's it, it felt as if you guys were trying to rebrand the Republican Party. Well, we actually used the phrase "a different kind of Republican." That was mm-hmm. the way we branded ourselves in the primaries, um, yeah. and that was, uh, you know, I think people, you know, they. Republicans, after eight, eight years of Clinton, um, were I think ready to to um, to win again. Um, but I mean, we we'll get to it later. But ultimately, parties don't change if they're winning; um, they change when they lose. And the Republican Party had been losing at the presidential level in two thousand. You know, by the year two thousand, after two Clinton terms, yeah. right? Exactly, and so they were prepared and ready. And I, I don't think that's impossible. We always think our moment is permanent. Yeah, but uh, you know, things, political atmospheres can change, and we've seen that. So. Yeah. No, we keep. Uh, you always hear about the every administration starts with ambitious goals about redefining. Uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, political uh, arrangement for the future. I mean, uh, Carl Rove was a friend of mine and right. and uh, and yours uh, right. 
talked about, uh, you know, uh, uh, and he, and he, of course, is a big uh, scholar about the early 20th century, but he saw this as a big Republican moment where Republicans could redefine themselves for a generation. Um, You know, we had hopes to do that uh, when Obama won. It it is hard. (laughs) It is hard to do. No, it's absolutely. And, you know, when we put forward a the details of a compassionate conservative agenda so that you actually want to, you know, put a significant amount of money into promoting the work of private and religious institutions in the provision of social services or whatever, you know, or voucherizing addiction treatment or, you know, a lot of different things that we wanted to do. We found that the biggest opposition that we had was not from Democrats. It was from Republicans on the Hill. You know, I had seen, having spent some time in a religious nonprofit, that they have comparative advantages. They actually do things that, you know, government bureaucracies can't do. And, of course, there are things government bureaucracies do that private and religious institutions well, can't do either. Let me ask you about that because, you know, um, there used to be um, – there used to be uh, small government conservatives. Now we have no government yeah. conservatives. What is the, in your view, what is the appropriate role of of government? Well, the appropriate role is to seek the common good, um, and you know that's not common, and unless it includes the most vulnerable members of society, and but. Those needs are often best met through um, institutions that mediate between individuals in the state, um, families and you know neighborhood institutions and community groups and religious organizations and the whole thing. I'm a Burkean in that sense. I think that that's where the health of a society is determined by the health of its civic structure. Um, and government should play a role in consciously not in undermining or replacing those type of institutions, but finding ways to strengthen them when possible, um, particularly in communities where they're decimated, where they they don't work as well. Um, but presumably, uh, I mean, obviously the military is one. There are things only the government Well, it's, it's like, you know, saying, you know, churches should take over Medicaid. It's absurd, okay? I mean, there are things, government does scale, and it collects resources, and it does things that private institutions can't do. Um, But I think if you objectively look at the things like on addiction treatment, and you look at the way that private and religious institutions approach that, it can be very, very effective. And that, you know, under that circumstance, you know, it it would make sense to have a role of government that... uh, you know, gives gets them the resources they need to do things they do well. Mm-hmm. One of the one I remember the debates of the of the two thousands, uh, the nineties and two thousands about uh, these programs, and one of the concerns was um, uh, introducing uh, faith based institutions, and whether this became a vehicle for. Uh, kind of proselytizing right um and um is that not a legitimate concern i mean i, I no, worry it's a about perfectly I, legitimate concern but it's not 
a particularly controversial one in a certain way. A lot of those rules were clarified and promulgated during the Clinton administration. It wasn't during the Bush administration. You could do certain things. You can't do certain things. You know, you don't have to take the cross down from the wall, um, but you can't use the you know um, government money for proselytization and kind of the central religious purposes. You can use it to provide social services. Essentially, yeah. um, that's it, that's not all that controversial, um, but. You know, there, there's a lot of there was a lot of distrust on both sides. There are plenty of religious institutions that don't want anything to do with government because they think it comes with strings and that they're going to come under the influence of, of of government, and so they're very wary. And then you have you know people that are wary about the the role of faith based institutions in our in our society. Um, but you look at great cities. You know, these ideas weren't invented by George W. Bush. I mean, you know, you look at the way that um, social services are provided in New Orleans or they're provided in um, uh, Philadelphia or they're provided in Boston, and a lot of them are done through private and religious institutions. Yeah. That's the way we do it. My, my and, daughter, who has intellectual disabilities, she lives in a community that's run by the Sisters of Mercy. Right. Um, and we're we're not we're not Catholic, um, and it's a splendid place. And uh, you look at, for example, the role of Catholic education in inner city settings. This is now an inst- these used to be you know run they were created for you know Polish refugees mm-hmm. or uh, not refugees but immigrate immigrants or ethnic groups ca- ethnic Catholic groups. A lot of them are now run for the benefit of non-members. For, you know, African American kids that don't—they're not Catholic, um, and you know that is a very useful social purpose that yeah. we need to honor. It seems to me. How do you? Um, how do we um, process the uh, the thing that I so appreciate about this country, uh, being a first-generation uh, American, is um, its pluralism, is freedom of worship. Right. Um, it's a great strength. It's been uh, it's a great strength for those who live here. It's a beacon to the world, and increasingly, and partly because of the politics of this president, um, uh, it seems to me that's under threat that we are uh, that that our diversity is being turned uh, against us uh, and turning each uh, turning us against each other others. Uh, against each other. So um, how does that live alongside, um, you know, the religious movements uh, in this country, particularly, you know? Well, you do have to have a little historical perspective. Things like the Catholic-Protestant divide in America was one of the deepest divides in our history. There were anti-Catholic riots in a variety of places where people were killed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then you had political parties that had anti-Catholic planks, you know, and, um, you know, the, so we've, we don't have a, a great history on, on some of these issues, uh, particularly on that Catholic-Protestant divide. That, that's better to some extent than it has been in American history. And politics, weirdly, without going into, you know, a lot of detail, um, conservative politics contributed to that unity, you know, I I would you would see pro life rallies in the 1980s with people from Liberty University and 
with Knights of Columbus, and they had never done anything together before. They were deeply divided. Um, and so, you, you, you know, you do have uh, – it's not all um, a bad story. But, no, but, you know, I, you hear now um, the – for I think, for political purposes, the um, evo- uh, evoking of you know America as a Christian country, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know the the demonization obviously of Muslims, but uh, and a sense that if you don't acknowledge America as a Christian country, that you're part of um, you know that it's political correctness, that it's yeah. and and it is. Essentially, um, I think a function of uh, mining um, a sense of besiegement that some in the evangelical community have felt, yeah. uh, but but it seems very ugly to me. Yeah, I, I I find it disturbing, not just for the public realm, but for religion itself. I mean that it the danger of that type of approach and rhetoric is both to the public square and to faithful communities, um, you know that this is a distortion of their of their primary mission. So yeah, I think it's a serious problem. It is rooted in a history. You know, Donald Trump has taken advantage of a large chip on the shoulder of the evangelical community. They feel disrespected by kind of the uh, you know the cultural heights of our society. Um, and he essentially said... And probably the speed of change that we've seen. I agree with that. And he essentially said, you know, your enemies are my enemies. Um, and, you know, I dislike the same people that, that, that dislike you. Um, and uh, What's so peculiar to, about it, though, is you, can't, you could not fashion a person who seems less consistent right. with sort of the... the, the the teachings of the evangelical movement. No, I agree with that. And it's not just style and not just, you know, the obvious moral issues, but this is a guy that has a set of values um, that say, this, you know, the strong count more than the weak and the wealthy count more than the poor. Um, yeah. His and, father, I guess, uh, was famously told him there the, that, that you're either... Uh, you're either... That there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are killers and there are losers. Right. And he talks about losers, and that could hardly be less consistent with Christian teaching, which actually, you know, says the vulnerable matter most to some extent. Um, and um, yeah, I know I think it's a it's an odd, uh, you know, odd cultural moment where this movement that that has stood for the character of public leaders when it came to Bill Clinton. All of a sudden, that doesn't matter at all when it seems to be politically beneficial. And they're acting in a lot of ways just like an interest group, like other interest groups. Um, This guy's going to help me. He's made a series of promises, and, you know, he's fulfilled them. Uh, He he actually has been pretty faithful to to the promises that he made. Um, On judges, on abortion. Right, yeah, on uh, some religious liberty kind of issues. Um, And, um, but... So all that is psychologically uh, understandable, but that's not the purpose of, from my perspective, of Christians in public life is to seek the benefit of their themselves and their own institutions. Like they're some interest group. That's a fundamental betrayal of what I think a Christian social ethic, um, which is really, um, uh, 
you know, as I was defining it earlier, I'm not a Catholic, but it involves solidarity with the poor, um, and it involves subsidiarity, respect for these mediating institutions in our common life, um, and it involves the pursuit of the common good. Um, you know, that, that to me, it's a, it, it is a fundamental betrayal of, of Christian doctrine to say that our goal in the world is to seek our own benefit. <laughs> I mean, that is really deeply inconsistent with the, with the gospel. You were you were particularly tough uh, in the in December during the Senate election in Alabama when uh, mm-hmm. and Roy Moore got eighty percent of the evangelical vote right. in that in that race. How do you process that? It's really hard to process because I mean there are there are a lot more Christians than just evangelicals there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, evangelicals did support about eighty percent. African American Christians supported uh, his opponent ninety five percent. It's almost as though they live in entirely different worlds, even though they share the same faith. And the well, basic it's thing. as if tri- political tribalism took precedence over, over over the most basic beliefs about the world. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it it is um, uh, you know the the justification is uh, we have to vote for someone who's pro life, no matter. Uh, who they are or what they do. Okay, that's a lot in a lot of people's minds. That's that's the justification. But you know, Roy Moore would have come to Washington and deeply discredited the pro-life cause again and again um, by the way he argues, the way that he um, put forward issues. Um, it's very short-sighted to say to use that as the only standard for a public official. You know, a single issue um, and. Uh, uh, you know, I am actually um, pro-life, and but I, I think that that would have been uh, that vote was an easy vote um, because I think Moore would have deeply discredited that cause um, as he had already. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I, um, I also think that um, on this issue of abortion, pro-life, uh, you know. I, there was a great debate in I think it was in the nineties over um over uh postnatal care for children and 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 mothers and the funding uh, for it right. and and Barney Frank said uh, he was debating someone said the the problem is you can't believe that life begins at conception and ends at birth right yeah and there has there has to be some consistency. I agree with that, it, and I think Catholics do this a little better. They essentially say, "Look, if you're pro-life, you can't dehumanize migrants. Okay, if you're against euthanasia, you have to be for healthcare for families." I mean, they, there's some kind of a consistency. Not not that all Catholics believe those all those things, but there there is a kind of if then, if you're pro-life, then you have to be. You know, honor the dignity of every life, um, and uh, I think there's that's very important. I, I, for example, I mean, well, I think one of the the greatest pro-life um, uh, achievements of of the last uh, twenty years was, you know, what was done on uh, PEPFAR and the um, yeah. president's you know emergency plan for AIDS relief. I mean, saving millions of lives. Um, you were deeply involved in that. Yeah, it, it was something. Uh, not to go into too much detail, but um, 
my roommate and best friend at uh, at Wheaton College. Um, uh, after we kind of went to different parts of the country, and you know, he stopped returning my phone calls, and I thought he just had a new life or whatever. And he turned out to have AIDS. Um, he died in um, 1993, um, just a year or two before the drugs were arriving. That the combination. Did you of reconnect drugs. at all, or did you learn? Yeah, we did. I, you know, I saw him at the end, and it was, you know, ki- kids in college don't have this experience now, but people did back then of watching friends die of AIDS, which mm-hmm. was a horrible, wasting death, um, and. When we got to the White House about 10 years later, um, you know, we were seeing a uh, cresting wave of death across sub-Saharan Africa that was beyond belief. You know, maybe 30 million people with HIV virus and maybe 50,000 people on treatment. Um, You know, it was threatening the stability of whole societies. Um, And, um, you know, that was a case where I know... A lot of people have strong opinions about George W. Bush, but uh, when that when it became clear that we could do something rigorous and effective on this issue, he was the biggest supporter of of that. Um, and then that was continued through the Obama administration and expanded in important ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, you know, whenever Pepfar I'm, was one of the great humanitarian yeah. accomplishments uh, of, of of the last, yeah, since the Marshall Plan in many ways. Yeah. Um, and and you know that that was an issue where, um, you know, the where Republicans and Democrats really did come together. I mean, from the time we announced that in the 2003 State of the Union, it was about four months until it went it was became law, um, and it had the support of the you know, most senior Republican and Democratic leaders. Our partners on a lot of both PEPFAR and then the reauthorization of PEPFAR were John Kerry and Joe Biden. Um, They were deeply involved in this set of issues. Um, Which speaks to the ability to work together on some things, even if you don't agree on all things. Right. Something that that is increasingly hard to find. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, these... uh, these global health issues are, have been a refuge from the bitterness of our politics, a safe harbor for a lot of people. It's one reason I've stayed involved with them, with the One Campaign, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bono's organization, mm-hmm. where I, I, I'm an advisor there, um, because it's, it's a refreshing alternative to so much of the bitterness of American politics. You know, another thing that was important uh, to him was immigration reform. And one of the things that... Uh, had impressed me when he was governor of Texas was that he resisted the nativism that we saw, for example, in California with Pete uh, Wilson with Proposition uh, 187. And um, uh, the Republican Party has become a nativist party now. And uh, interestingly, the nativism is mostly centered in places where there's very little immigration. Um, How did that happen? Why did it happen? It's it's a, a tough question because the it was emerging in during our term. I mean, when the president pursued comprehensive immigration reform in his second term, um, the um, there was a revolt on the um, in the conservative media 
Fox was pounding the immigration issue every day um, in the time that Bush was trying to pursue comprehensive reform. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm told by members of Congress um, that uh, uh, talk radio and other people were getting advice from consultants that this is good business. Um, I mean, there is a business aspect to mm -hmm. partisan media. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this was seen as an issue that sold. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, we were you know, trying to do what a lot of people who want to come to a, uh, some kind of compromise end up similar to what we were proposing, you know, something that had to do with... Yes. Um, you know, a tough path to... to um, uh, well, and penalties for those who broke the law. Right, exactly. Yes. And, you know, a, a temporary worker program of some kind to fill needs, economic needs mm -hmm. in our country. Um, you know, all those elements. Um, but it was, uh, you know, he was a weakened president by that point because of Iraq. And the right led the opposition to, to that, the, kind of the ideological right. Um and so we were seeing it at that point. Um, you know, it, it's it, there are deep roots to this, but it kind of points to the role of leadership. Um, I mean, you know, there are facts about our society that are not necessarily, um, uh, you know, things that we would prefer. Um, but leaders can incite it or they can try to, channel things into productive um, ways um, to say, yeah, we're concerned about the border, but we need to solve this problem, it's this problem, and this problem. Um, and uh, we went from having, um, at the national level, a Republican who uh, you know, wanted to come up with a bipartisan solution to someone who used it as an organizing political principle you know that the resentment against muslims and and migrants and and refugees as a way to to uh you know organize resentment and in fact that's the way trump views politics is the systematic organization of resentment he is uh, not alone in this and and we are not alone in this you see it all over western europe right um, and so there are common elements uh, that have to do with both economics and culture. Yeah. The, the profile of the pro-Brexit voter very much is the profile of the pro-Trump yeah. voter. Uh, and the same is true with these populist nativist movements all over Europe. I, I completely agree with that. But you, but you do see how leadership can make that worse. I have a friend, Emil Brunner, um, who is a uh, sociologist at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. He studies dehumanization and has done a, a serious amount of work in Hungary. Yeah. And they've, he found, he uses various measures, social scientific measures of dehumanization, the way you view other groups. Um, and he found over the course of a single year, um, when the government was, you know, demonizing Roma and... Um, building a fence and, uh, you know, making this a big issue, that the level of dehumanization in Hungarian society doubled in a single year. I mean, that's what leadership can do when you 
take you know the the dark side of any country um, because that exists uh, you know it's it exists in human nature mm-hmm. um, and um, but when you incite it as a tool it uh, you know what you're ending up with is not just tribalism but dehumanization you're ending up with saying that some people are worth less yes um, plainly yeah and that that's the real danger of all of these trends you know polarization is is a problem and motivated reasoning is a problem but the the destination of all this is the is dehumanization yeah i think um i agree with this i also uh, think though i mean I, I was really struck by um how fundamentally um, shocked and unaccepting uh, uh, people were. Uh, I, I have a home in a rural area and a home in the urban area. In the urban area, people could not believe that Donald Trump got elected president. In the rural area, everybody had Trump signs in their yards. And as I said, we were in a program last night together. These weren't all toothless, ignorant racists. These were good people Absolutely. who felt alienated, left, uh, who felt disdained. Trump. Uh, uh, who had experienced the dislocation of globalization in some in many cases because a lot of small factories had had left and this is the challenge we are living through revolutionary times driven by technology driven by globalization I don't think you put those genies back in the bottle, but we'd better have a strategy for dealing with the impacts of impacts of them or we are creating great opportunity for the demagoguery that we've seen yeah no. And there's the huge opportunity cost of a broken politics is that we can't address these issues. You know, if you have to do something about skills or you have to do something about rural problems or you have to do something about, you know, opioids or whatever, when you have a broken politics, it, it becomes very hard to address that set of issues. So, I, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I, that is a real danger. You, uh, uh, you you probably ten years ago would not have foreseen a Republican Party that was anti FBI and pro Putin. Putin. Yeah, yeah. No, that's beyond belief. Yeah, and it it and the thing that disturbs me, as I've written recently, is not that Trump would try to delegitimize or undermine the institution of the FBI. Um, that's his mode of operation. Uh, um, you know, he, he wants to undermine any institution that can hold him to account. I mean, that's it's a dangerous thing. But the way that Republicans and Republican leaders have provided cover for that is uh, shocking to me. I mean, I know a lot of these men. It's deeply disappointing. Well, you know, I was I, I, I woke up this morning as we speak and uh, read the piece about Senator Corker who had resigned and had had been very forthright and critical of the president in terms that are not unlike the ones that you have used about his temperament, uh, about his preparedness. Uh, and um, now he's decided that perhaps he does want to run for re-election. And we're told that he's trying to get in back into the good graces of the president. To me, this was a parable of what makes people cynical about politics. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem is not uh, that the thing that causes disillusionment for me and a lot of other people is not evil people in politics. 
it's good people that do the wrong things. That's mm-hmm. the that's what's most disturbing. Um, what did you think about that story about Corker? I, you know, I'm not sure I know enough uh, right now. I, I have a lot of respect for Senator Corker mm-hmm. and the role that he um, uh, plays on the Hill. Um, but uh, you know, it's hard to expect to, at some level, um, you know, politicians to buck broad political trends yeah. it's it's hard um, i know i always say it, there's a reason profiles encourage with such a slim volume right yeah, yeah. It, it's you know eventually i i think it's going to be very important for rank and file republicans to show some sense on this yeah but and, you know I, I when you look at who the rank and file republicans are uh, at least in these very homogenous republican districts many of which are in uh, rural areas in the Midwest, in the South, um, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult, I think, to. It is, and it, it, it relates to the polarization point. I mean, we live in a landslide country. Okay, we have every election is a landslide election. It's just different places, a different landslide. Right. Okay? You know, where if you're in a red district, it's a red la- landslide, and if you're blue district, it's a blue landslide. Right. There are very few places where you're not a lot of purple out there. Right. Exactly. And so everyone around you is holding the same views. You know, it's yeah. um, and 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 that's that is accentuated or, or exacerbated by the fact that we can create virtual reality worlds around us as well yeah. social media and on television and and radio where we never hear uh, we're only our points of view are only affirmed they're not informed yeah and i think that partisan media has played a huge role in all this that mm-hmm. we're, media where the goal is not to inform but to incite not to provide information but ammunition and you point out there's a lot of money in that yeah there is and that is different um you know richard nixon did not have fox news might have survived if he did right exactly um and uh, this is uh, this isn't something relatively new, not new in American history, but new in modern American history. Do you see any circumstance under which uh, enough Republicans would vote to remove this president if Mueller, if Mueller's report is uh, is is significant enough? I I'd like to say yes. <laughs> um, you know I. Tell me what you think, not what you like. Right, yeah. I, this is a, a case where I think it's possible that, you know, a 400-page Mueller report that has damning new information on every aspect of corruption, you know, collusion, and obstruction um, could turn uh, a national consensus um, in ways Maybe, that, although you know this right. this this uh, conservative uh, media complex that you're talking about, Fox right. and Rush and Breitbart and all of those folks, seem to be uh, trying to saw the branch out from. No, I agree. I mean, that is the strategy, the conscious strategy, I believe, on the part of the president is to prepare the ground mm-hmm. that if there's a hostile report, that he can say it's fake news, yeah. and he and his allies can say it's fake news. Um, I hope that doesn't succeed. Um, now, you know, if it's a relatively weak report, then it's it's a different right. circumstance. And that, and, and, I, and I would say to people on the other side of the debate, many of them are my friends, that uh, 
one has to be prepared for either result. I mean, yeah. you can't say Bob Mueller is a man of integrity and then say if he doesn't deliver the shill. report you want. He, yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. You know, before we go, I just want to say you wrote a column the other day uh, called Trump is Vandalizing the One House He Can't Own. And a lot of it was recounting your own experience working mm-hmm. in the White House for six years. I worked there for two um, and I think we share an orientation, but I wanted to tell you that uh, one of the most um, moving experiences I had was in the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. As you know, we hadn't been very kind to President Bush in our campaign. Uh, we were quite critical. Uh, but at every juncture, we got this very high level of cooperation. All our counterparts invited us over to the White House. And on the day of the inauguration, uh, I said on television, I think this was what makes our country great, this this sense of re- responsibility uh, as trustees of this democracy, one handing it to the other, regardless of, of party. And I was really... So I saw President Bush in the Speaker's office beforehand, and I said, Mr. President, I, I wanted to tell you what I've been on TV. I've been talking about you. And he said, well, I don't watch TV. And I said, well, let me tell you what I said. I said, you guys have been true patriots in the way you've handled this, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And he then gave me some words of encouragement, which I won't share here, um, that were so kind Mm -hmm. and so inspiring uh, that I will never forget it. I don't agree with a lot of, uh, I certainly don't agree on the war, and there were other policies of his that I don't agree with. But I will always appreciate that, and I will appreciate the. F- and what I saw was someone who deeply cared about um, our institutions, about uh, fundamental values of democracy. Um, that's what I'm missing right now, yeah. and uh, it's not a partisan point. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you get the sense. I get the sense that um, that President Trump is like squandering an inheritance that he doesn't value. He doesn't even know it's valuable. Um, the, the respect for the office and the norms that surround the presidency. Um, it's a powerful office. A lot of things the president doesn't do, he doesn't do because of norms, not because of laws. Right. Um, and w- once those are violated and the institution is revealed as, as a smaller, uh, you know, narrower institution... That there's a real uh, damage to that, and and I felt the same way. I mean, I one thing that the Trump administration has done has has been to um, you know make clear to that that we shared more in our politics in the past than we thought we shared at the time. <laughs> um, yes, and look, you know, and I, we talked about this yesterday. I think that um, we've seen. I think our institutions have actually proven to be pretty resilient during this period. The news media, including your paper, The Washington Post, has done some really, really fine reporting and shining bright lights into dark corners, which is what the the founders envisioned as its role. Uh, The courts... uh, the Congress itself has not rolled over in, yeah, in existence. Russia and right, yeah, right. Yeah. Although <laughs> they've they've done the right thing. Now the president uh, 
and not on, yeah. on the sanctions about uh, on the Russian sanctions, uh, but mostly uh, citizens themselves. You don't hear people say anymore, elections don't matter. No. There is a real interest in in elections mm-hmm. now and in running for public office and. Um, those things, I think, are actually, uh, those are byproducts of Trumpism, not the ones he intended. Uh, but, um, but there are signs of social health in our society. I mean, the checks are checking, the balances are balancing, all that is true. But then you have movements like, you know, like Me Too, um, which is yes. a profoundly influential movement. The, the only problem that we, you know, the problem that we have is that we're not going to get any leadership from the executive on these set of issues. Right. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to get leadership on these issues. It emerges in different places, in different forms. Um, that's the sign of a healthy society. Yeah. Well, I said last night um, something that I then read today in one of your columns, and I, I, I hope uh, I hope I didn't steal the thought from you, uh, and that I hope we came to it independently, but... The question of who Donald Trump is has been asked and answered. The real question is who we are and how we're going to respond to it as a, as a people, as a country, as a society. Um, and uh, there's individual responsibility uh, for that, each of us, um, not just institutional responsibility. And we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I'm optimistic about that. Hmm. But um, well, I, I'm optimistic in the long run. Um, I look at my party that I've been associated with, and optimism comes hard yeah. um, at this moment. And you, in fact, have said you think uh, uh, losing would be. Yeah, I, winning parties don't reform themselves. Mm-hmm. Republicans are going to have to lose in order to come to an ideological crisis and say that some elements of this appeal are not going to work in the long run. And, you know, we're an evenly divided country in many ways, and we've proven that in a variety of like, yes. very close elections in America. Um, but, the, there, you know, 40 years from now, there's no Republican future in being the, um, the party of, of white men. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, there's going to have to be something different. There is you know? an actuarial uh, reality, yeah. and you know that doesn't mean that Trump can't win the next reality. election. But it means over time, Republicans are going to have to take into account the nature of our country, and have to find ways to appeal to all its people. Um, and that, you know, that's the um, the noble part of of the running for president is to say I'm going to represent everybody. Um, not turn people against one another. And, and uh, you know, I think we're going to see that again. I think Republicans are going to be forced to it in a certain way over time. But I think it could be a very rough road in the next few years. We talked about Trump violating norms. Um, and um, you and I spoke about this uh, privately. Uh, you know, I was there with Obama in 2008 when he he worked as a candidate with the Bush administration to deal with the aftermath of the crash of Lehman Brothers and right. the need to stabilize Wall Street. It wasn't popular. Uh, and then three months later, when he became president, there was a, a decision made really by the leadership, uh, particularly Senator McConnell, not to co- not to cooperate, not to join with him on any of these big initiatives, because the, the thrust of the Obama message was we can get past this partisan, uh, right. you know, uh, this th- these partisan barriers. 
Um, and throughout those eight years, that was the sort of governing yeah. principle. That to me seems to, that's a norm that was violated, the norm that, of sort of responsible cooperation, not capitulation, but cooperation. And I worry about whether we can recover it. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I mean, you do have this spirit in modern American politics of we can win it all. Okay. Yeah. It's there's like, an absolutism. It's right. it's yeah. It's, it's like we're we're going to take over everything and do exactly what we wish. Okay. And you, you see elements of that on the left, and you see elements yeah. of that on the right. Um, and that is not the way governing is usually done, particularly in a system where you can't really win it all. Right. Okay. We've come to the point where. Traditional democratic virtues, such as compromise and moderation, these are the virtues that the founders praised right. as positive things, have become epithets. I yes. mean, they're, they're accusations. Yeah. You're compromised. You're moderate. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, I think, is a problem. I mean, one of my, my fears right now is, you know, we no longer effectively have a center-right political party in America right now. Um, at the national level. Right. The state level is different, but the national level, we don't have a center-right party. I hope that people like you prevail, that we uh, don't get into a situation where we don't have a center-left party in America either in reaction to this mm-hmm. by going the Jeremy Corbyn route. Yes. Okay? Um, and that that would, uh, you know, widen this this gap of polarization even further than it is now. If really you would just have, you know, a, you know, a nativist right-wing populist party and a, uh, you know, quasi-socialist party um, in the Bernie Sanders kind of uh, uh, mode, I think that would be bad, really bad for American politics. Um, we need center-right and center-left leaders to emerge. And, you know, that... Um, the, the question is whether the question is whether the nominating processes will yield that. You know, yeah. um, I, but, I, I I think it's it's my guess is that uh, the Democratic Party can produce a candidate that who is broadly uh, acceptable through their process. Uh, I think the Republican process that we saw in 2016 was pretty. Well, I think tough. one of the biggest forces of polarization in our common life is the ideological polarization of the parties. I mean, you used to have two parties with two wings. Yeah. Okay. Liberal and conservative. Well, wings, you right? also had you had this goes to the gerrymandering issue, but you right. had uh, you had liberal. I mean, I grew up in New York City when Nelson Rockefeller was right. governor and Jacob Javits was the senator, and you and all over the Northeast and the Midwest, you had moderate Republicans, and there were conservative Democrats all over the South. Well, and it provided some kind of overlap of ideological overlap in the Congress that yeah. no longer exists, yeah. okay? And I don't dispute that the the transformation of the Republican Party happened faster. It is more conservative than the Democratic Party is liberal, the Democratic Party, but it's moved in the but same direction. I, I would submit to you that right. uh, in this story, in this saga of what's happened to our politics, the person who's played as big... Uh, almost as big a role as Donald Trump, was not an ideologue at all, but was Mitch McConnell, hmm. who, who is utterly pragmatic and wasn't driven by ideology, but was driven by uh, uh, you know, a, a, a desire for power and to, uh, and to expand his caucus. Uh, and whatever worked, he was willing to do. 
And uh, whether it was holding Merrick Garland out for nearly a year after Justice Scalia died, uh, or uh, filibustering as a steady diet in the and you know these things do become the norms. Yeah, and uh, it's be, and it's been reflected in the Senate in particular under Democrats and Republicans with the death of regular order. Yes. Where I talked to a lot of senators who were very frustrated. The people, process by right? which bills go through committee, right. they're debated on the floor, they're allowed to be amended. Right. right. You know, and right now the practice is to fill the amendment tree so no one can make any amendments. You know, big bills are written in the majority leader's office. They don't really, you know, the committees are not as relevant as they once were. And sprung with very little time to debate them. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, people can't even, no time to read things. And, mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's not a functioning process. But it's a good example of what you're talking about because you had some of those norms were, were uh, in my view, um, were violated by uh, Senator Reid. Yes. Uh, um, and then when a Republican comes in, it's very hard to undo things, yeah. and they go further. It's hard. And, you know, and, the thing is, right. it, it, this is a chicken and egg kind of situation. Right. I mean, Reid would, would argue that it faced with, for example, uh, filibusters on every appointment and, right. and every motion to proceed, and that uh, if they hadn't uh, uh, limited the filibuster, there wouldn't have been— the President Obama would have gotten in, you know, but that's many of that's the, the nature and, of polarization is that both sides have a good case, not mm -hmm. that they have a bad case. <laughs> but you, you get into a cycle where it, there are, uh, you know, each side does have problems, yeah. um, and it and it's very hard to say stop, stop, this far and no further, um, and uh, you know that that's what we're going to need to do. We're going to need institutionalists to push back against uh, this, you know, completely utilitarian approach to politics. Yeah. People that say institutions matter, processes matter. Um, Institutionalism is not uh, trading very high right now, but I agree with you. I agree with you. And maybe there will be a reaction to all of this. Maybe people will say, you know what, we've got to pull back from the abyss here. One hopes that that will happen. Yeah, I hope so too. Michael Gerson, it's great talking to you. Thank you for coming to the Institute of Politics and for shining a bright light yourself uh, at a time when it's needed. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.